Hello and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, here with my co-host Sean Cheatham. We have a special guest with us today for the third time, actually. He's becoming somewhat of a regular on the show. Um, Dr. James Dolezal, coming all the way from California. Uh, Dr. Dolezal, thank you for joining us today. We appreciate it. Daniel, Sean, I appreciate you having me on. It's good to be back. Um, So we're going to talk about uh, an article that you um, came out with recently on the incarnation and talking about some different, three different views on the incarnation as it relates to uh, the divine essence and the human nature of Christ coming together. Um, This is found, the article is called Neither uh, Subtraction Nor Addition, the words terminative assumption of the human of a human nature. Um, this can be found in a couple of places, academia.edu um, or in Nova et Vetera, the English edition, volume 20, number one um, in that uh, particular journal. Um, so diving right into our, our topic on the incarnation. So uh, this work deals with those three different views. So what was the inspiration for writing uh, this work, uh, this article, I should say, um, on the incarnation? Maybe, maybe twofold, and I'll start with a broader one. Um, my work, uh, at least published work prior to this, has been mostly in theology proper, doctrine of God, and particularly emphasizing sort of classical theism, immutability, impassibility, timeless eternity, divine simplicity, kind of the, the package that kind of travels under the name classical theism. Um, and I've written mostly to articulate and defend those doctrines. It seemed to me, uh, though, over, over time, that the, the questions I would get about classical theism, not exclusively, but not infrequently, were from the standpoint of Christology, which is, you know, that's great. God's timeless, eternal, immutable, impassable, and simple. And yet, John 1.14, the word became flesh. And so doesn't, doesn't a real incarnation of the divine word becoming true man, um, a reasonable soul and body, doesn't both the incarnation as event and then the consequent of hypostatic union in which one person subsists in two truly distinct natures, doesn't that require that we loosen up the strictures of classical theism, at least at least loosen them up enough to make space for real incarnation. And the idea is that real incarnation takes time. Real incarnation is in fact an event that befalls the son or befalls the word that comes upon the word and adds something new to the word. And in some cases, some might even imagine takes something away from the word Um, by word. I mean, capital W logos um, John John's prologue. Um, so that cha- like that challenge got me thinking, uh, how come all of these classical theists that I've studied, whether you're talking about Athanasius or Boethius or, you know, later Anselm or Augustine or any of the others, how come they did not seem acutely perplexed by the quote unquote problem of the incarnation? Why was there, why was there classical theism sort of at home? with the incarnation. So that was one that was one question sort of how they put it together, how did they articulate the doctrine of the incarnation in a way that satisfied the demands of their theology proper. So that's more and I kind of begin the article from that standpoint of a commitment to divine immutability uh, among other things. More specifically my interest in the article was just tr- wrestling 
with some sense of dissatisfaction with the leading models of incarnation or assumption that were offered uh, in both the Protestant world and frankly, among some modern Catholics um, as well. And my dissatisfaction there on the one side was that of what's called canonicism, uh, the idea that in order to, for the word to become man, to become flesh, to become true human, that the word himself had to undergo some kind of loss. And then, you know, uh, that didn't appeal to me because when you have an immutable, impassable, non-partitionable deity, uh, then what could the son really possess that he could really lose? And if he could really lose it, he'd have to lose it as divine because there's not like, I'm okay with Christ incarnate, you know, losing his socks or something like that. Like, <laughs> you know what I'm after? Like, that's an accident. You can lose it. No problem. Uh, that seems unproblematic. But when you have the son in his, for lack of a better term, and I really mean that, pre-incarnate state, losing some, losing some real condition of the pre-incarnate state, then you have to locate the loss in something properly divine. Um, in which, unless you want to say that he was always composed of substance and accidents and he just lost an accidental state of being, at which point then divine simplicity is false and every single implication that has to follow from that, you know, enters into the framework. So that was, that's the ones like that was dissatisfying to me, but increasingly uh, the other answer to that also was dissatisfying as well, which is the son didn't lose anything in the incarnation, rather he added something to himself. And so you, you often, the way that it was taught to me was it was not by subtraction that he took on flesh, but by addition, um, which we can talk about this in a few minutes, but that there's certainly the motives underlying that counterpoint are better than the motives underlying the canonicism, at least as I could judge it. Yet, nevertheless, that also seemed not quite right in the sense that if what he is as divine and as divine person is infinite fullness of being, perfect is the older word, if he's perfect, then how could he add to himself in any real sense? Because you can't add to or augment that which is perfect or that which is infinite in being. Uh, moreover, to take on a real addition requires that there be some lack of being. That is to say, you can only add what you don't possess. But then you can't say to an infinite being, there's a state of being or a form of being he doesn't possess. Um, the, only, the, the best you could do is a double negative. He doesn't possess non-possession or he doesn't possess finitude. You could say something like that. Um, and then you'd be right. But then you'd be right back to the problem of, and you can't add, you can't add finitude to infinitude and that be a real addition. So... I guess that was the struggle. Like the addition answer over the years seemed less and less satisfying. And I should just add one more footnote on that. It also struck me that while moderns often say that's how the ancient church or the medieval or reformation church spoke about the incarnation, it turns out that that doesn't seem to be the case. Um, as you look at the text, and I'm not saying, I mean, certainly I have not examined every text and there are certainly outliers in every tradition and every Orthodox circle. There are the kind there, there's always garble in there somewhere that you can find to be. But again, I think those are the exceptions that prove the rule. The exception here would be any talk of the son adding a human nature to himself. Uh, 
scripture and the church tradition uses a much more modest term, which is what we call assumption or taking to himself. I think it's a modern tendency because we're, I won't say why, well, I'll say a little bit of why, because we're living, we're living in a world where mathematics and physics dominates. Quantitative manners of thinking are everything. Even the way we talk about the creator-creature distinction, bigger, smaller, God's omniscient because he quantitatively knows more things than we do. God's bigger than the world. We use this kind of bigger, smaller language because quantity absolutely dominates our language. Um, and so the, the problem though is, but then we use quantity to explain how this, the word became flesh, a kind of addition. Um, I, the history doesn't do that. Um, pre-modern uh, theology, whether Protestant or Roman or earlier uh, Eastern, talks about assumption or taking to, but it quite conspicuously is lacking. And I, I won't say without exception, though I haven't found the exceptions. I don't doubt that there are some there. They just don't say he added to himself. Um, and so I began to wonder, like, how come modern theologians say that the traditional Orthodox view is that he added a human nature when you don't actually find the language of addition by and large in the tradition? One last thing, Daniel, you asked what motivated me. It was then finding some favorite theologians, both Catholic and Protestant, who some of my most some of the theologians I revere the very most who utterly repudiate explicitly that he, that he added anything to his divine nature or person in the incarnation. And that seems like a pretty consistent denial across traditions over several centuries. And anyway, that's kind of, that's when I decided, I think I need to dig into this more because the addition is just as much a problem for classical theism as the subtraction in as much as it seems to presuppose some paucity of being in the person. All right. So that's, that's, <laughs> That's the lay of the land in terms of what what got me thinking. What 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 do we need to say about this? So it you know it it's almost as if the modern world has seemed like they have to add something else in terms of the description. It's like well we we don't understand it in terms of canonicism, so it's almost like they're going too far the other direction. Yeah, um, you can see well you can see the appeal of it actually. Yeah. If canonicism comes and says the word could not become flesh unless he gave up something. And you think to yourself, well, there's nothing in him that isn't divine pre-incarnate. And so therefore, if he gave up something, he'd have to be giving up something. And also, if you believe in divine simplicity, especially, you can't have him giving up something because then there'd have to be accidental states of being and et cetera. Yep. And so you can kind of see like the initial reaction to that. But then to say, well, it must be that rather than subtraction, he added something to himself. And I, I propose that in fact, the occasion, and I haven't, I haven't worked this out in hard scientific detail, but it seems to me to be a generally accurate description, that when canonicism arises in the 19th century and suddenly this idea of subtractions from the person, either from his nature or at least from his operations, uh, begins to be sort of a, a prerequisite for incarnation, um, that they, they are the ones that kind of introduce the language of divestment or subtraction into the Christological discourse. And then the Orthodox who are pushing back against them in a certain sense, allow themselves to be drawn into that kind of quantitative way of thinking. I'm not, I'm not even saying that people who say he added to himself distinctly were thinking quantitative augmentation. Uh, it just means that language on the other side kind of elicited addition like if i want to contract like like if somebody says i believe that the son subtracted something from himself in the incarnation 
it sounds so much cleaner and, and like perfectly matched to say, no, 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 that's all wrong. He actually added something to himself. That's how he became low by adding lowliness to himself or something like that. Um, whereas the, the right answer is that he didn't add or subtract anything, but rather he supplied ter- personhood as the, as the subsisting, as the, as the hoopostatic terminus of the assumed nature, which let me just say, I think that's right. And it's way more clumsy when you're actually doing battle with canonicists. <laughs> Do you get what I'm at? Like, it's just, like, is that what you're going to say? I, I mean, I don't, it's what I say, but that's because I'm, you know, I'm willing to be a little clumsy. Uh, but I think, I think that clumsiness is more accurate than the kind of neat and tidy addition, not subtraction. Um, if that makes sense. So I think we, I think it was, a, I think we were tricked. I think we were tricked into making the discussion about classical tr- tr- traditional theism addition, kind of a neo-theism, canonicism, subtraction, and those are your options. Pick one. And I, I don't like either, but it's not just, that's not just a personal sentiment. It turns out that the Christian tradition, the pre-modern tradition, didn't really like those options either. Mm. Um, so, so what to say instead? That's the, that's the challenge. Mm. Yep. What do you say instead? How do you say real incarnation? Um, and not say he lost something or he gained or a better, better added something. Well, how do you avoid saying that and still say, really, the word became flesh, no mutation, no subtraction, no addition, real incarnation. How do you, and I'm not saying, how do you solve that mystery? Uh, I don't think you do, but I do think we can characterize it with terms that are more accurate, that cause less problems for other areas of our theology. Excellent. Well, um, we've already we've already started talking about the categories here, but just to get a uh, a definition so that people uh, potentially reading the article will have a, a little bit of a background. What is divestive assumption, and why is it such a common approach to the incarnation? Do you think there's a well? I think to understand divestitive, what I call divestitive assumption, basically he can only take on flesh if he first either ceases some divine operation or even more dramatically lays aside certain attributes. Um, This is from uh, Stephen Davis, who said this, we call this now canonic Christology. And by the way, there is a true canonicism because Paul uses the word uh, kenosis or kanao in Philippians 2.7 to describe the words taking on the form of a servant. So I don't think we should say there's no kenosis, um, but kenoticism, it's kind of like rational and rationalism. You can be rational and not a rationalist. You can believe in kenosis and not be a kenoticist. Um, so just so we're clear on that, but kenoticism, that's the, that's the, the, the bad one um, I'm suggesting, uh, argues that there's a certain incompatibility between at least certain divine attributes or operations and human attributes and operations, and therefore to kind of make space for the human nature and its natural functions, certain natural functions or attributes, and they, they disagree with each other about what exactly is being kind of set aside or put in mothballs, so to speak. Um, but they, they decide, you know, there's, but there's a negotiation in which something in terms of the divine nature or operation of the person has to give way and make space for the humanity. So that if he doesn't undergo a change of any sort, then there's an incoherence among the natures. And so the three classic ones that the divestitive or canonicist approach uh, proposes is that for Christ to grow in wisdom and knowledge and to not know the day and the hour, 
to, to have a limited to have a limited human knowledge, he has to lay aside omniscience. So you can't know all things and then not know certain things. One person at the same time can't be in both conditions. Therefore, omniscience has got to be set aside or divested. Um, secondly, that you can't he can't suffer unto death and be genuinely weak and mortal and continue to be omnipotent. Omnipotent is incompatible with suffering unto death in a single person at one and the same moment, and therefore omnipotence needs to be laid aside. And then finally, omnis, omnipresence seems problematic. If he's going to be conceived in the virgin's womb, if he's going to lay in a manger, if he's going to take walks uh, around around Galilee and up up Arbel, up to the Arbel Cliffs, and if he's going to sit in a kind of local circumscribed way by a fireside eating fish with his disciples, then in other words, if he's going to be in Galilee as a man, that he can't be everywhere because he can't be in Galilee and Judea and, you know, and, and the remotest part of the sea, so to speak, all at once. And so if he's going to be a true man, then he's going to have to be locally circumscribed. But local cir- circumscription and omnipresence seem mutually incompatible. Therefore, to take on that localness that is unique, that is distinctive of his humanity, he's going to have to give up his omnipresence or at least if he doesn't give up his ownership of omnipresence, he's going to have to give up the action of being omnipresent so that, you know, if he wants to go and be omnipresent again, perhaps it's laying there in the storeroom and he can take it back when the time comes. But in the meantime, insofar as he is here in the flesh on the shores of Galilee and not anywhere else, omnipresence just seems like the wrong thing to say about him. And so it's, it's underneath the divestitive account is actually something that I would argue underlies it's a kind of fundamental commitment that underlies all the Christological heresies. And I don't, I don't want to run through a heresy taxonomy um, in any depth. Maybe we could mention a few, but it's what I kind of call a, a Christology, an incarnational theology of, for lack of a better phrase, think hyphens in this, something's got to give, something's got to give. And so for canonicism, certain divine attributes or operation are incompatible with humanity. They've got to give. They've either got to be comp- permanently put off or at least momentarily frozen um, or placed on hold. Or if it's operational, if the problem is operational, then you push pause on the operation and you stop doing divine stuff for a while so that you don't conflict with the human stuff you've got to do. Like that's, but you get the same, I mean, that, that same kind of rationale that something's got to give underlies all the ancient heresies as well. Um, for um, docetism or docetism, um, the idea that he wasn't really a man, if he's, if he's true God, then he can't be true man. And so what's got to give? A true human nature. And so he only appears to be man. If you're an adoptionist, the Ebionite view, um, if he's going to be true man, he can't be true God. And so therefore, he can only be God in an adoptive or honorific sense. Something's got to give. True divinity's got to give to make space for true humanity or true humanity's got to give to make space for true divinity. Those look like opposite heresies, and they certainly resolve the problem in two different ways, but they accept the problem. And that is the problem. Does that make sense? Like the pro- the problem before their solution, the problem is actually the problem. It shouldn't have been. In other words, something's got to give. Then you get the same thing with um, with Arianism. If he's begotten, if he's generated, then he cannot be true God because God is ingenerate. 
and the son is generated. Therefore, he can't be true God. For him to be true creature in any respect, then that's incompatible with being true God. Arius then flips it on the other side and says, but if he's this superior created mind, even if not a human mind, then he can't be fully human either because he can't have a human mind and a super created mind at the same time. Apollinaris comes and picks that up and says, basically, he can't be fully man the way that I am reasonable soul and body, he can have at best an animal soul and body, but the divine mind and the divine will do all the thinking and the willing for him. And so he lacks something essential to humanity, which is human reason. That's still a something, okay, like, all right, these are all these bewildered. Then Nestorianism comes along and Nestorianism says that, if, I'm going to give you a crude version of it, and, I, and I'm not going to try to adjudicate the debates about whether Nestorius was in fact a Nestorian or whether he was just a kind of incompetent who was sort of outmaneuvered by Cyril. Maybe that's true, but Nestorianism is the idea that what you actually have is you have a an operative collaboration between two persons, a divine one, the divine son, the Logos, and the man, Jesus of Nazareth, and that the word, the name Christ is actually a title that applies to both of them insofar as they collaborate in messianic mission but you don't actually have an identity of person. And so, so for Nestorius, he doesn't give up true divinity and he doesn't give up true humanity. He gives up what, what has to give in Nestorianism unity of person. Um, if listeners are thinking, how can I get into this? Highly recommend uh, uh, Cyril of Alexandria's little book, the unity of Christ, pretty cheap, highly recommended, great literature, pretty punchy too. Um but like still something's got to give. He can't be one person, true God, true man. That can't fit together at once. Every heresy actually, and then to, to Eutychianism. Eutychianism says that he's from two natures, not in two natures. And so that what you have is you have from true God and true man, you have a, a blending together, you know, as they say, a drop of humanity in an ocean of divinity. Uh, and that's the hypostatic union resulting basically in a, we call it monophysitism, monophysis, a single nature. So the sun is not in two natures, really distinct, but actually it's a tertium quid. It's a third thing from the two natures. Again, though, something's got to give. The real in, in, in Eutychianism, the real distinction of the two natures has to give, as it is as the sun subsists in those natures, that the real distinction has to give give way to a unity of nature because you can't have one person in two natures at the same time. You might like we, okay, that's the taxonomy I said I wouldn't give, but basically that's kind of everything across the spectrum of major ancient Christological heresies. And they all share the same underlying core commitment, which is it cannot be one person who is true God and true man without any loss or adjustment whatsoever at one and the same moment. Cannot back to Sean, you asked about divestment. I haven't lost your question. Um, this is, I think this is what's going on. Even in canonicism, canonicism comes along and says, there are just certain divine attributes and operations that seem incompatible with certain attributes of humanity. And therefore for the incarnate, for there to be space for the incarnation, we've got to put aside some either divine attributes or operations. That's the, that, so this is what Stephen Davis says. A canonic Christological theory is one that explains the incarnation in terms of the Logos of the Logos temporarily giving up or laying aside or divesting itself of or emptying itself of certain properties that normally belong to divinity. I think that's a good. I mean, that, and he holds that view. Um, I think that's a good description of that side of things. Like that's what they're saying that you can't 
you can't fill heaven and earth and be in the manger at the same, you know, concurrent, you know, at the same moment, the same person can't be in both States at one time. Um, actually what I think is going on in canonicism is it is a kind of like neo monophysitism. I know that sounds like, it's, you know, like a too long of a word for it, but I think really the idea is doing God stuff, at least certain God stuff and doing certain man stuff at one of the same moment, he, the same person couldn't be doing both things at the same time. Therefore, like in monophysitism, something from one or both natures has to kind of give way to make space for the unity. Um, and I think that's kind of what's underneath canonicism. And I, can I, I don't know. So that's a, hopefully that's a fair description of what it holds. Can I, can I, I, bring up where it, I don't know. Can I bring up where it fits more in our circles? Absolutely. Sure. Cause I don't like, it's easy to think, Oh, cannot, you know, canonicism was born in Lutheranism and then it spilled over into um, Anglicanism in the 19th century and it's easy to think this is just a 19th century Lutheran Anglican problem. Uh, and now we've, it's been addressed and there were lots of monographs in the early and mid 20th century against it. And now it's kind of in our past. Um, and yet I don't, I'm, I'm not convinced that's the case. I think that canonicism is alive and well. And I think of all the Christological errors out there, it's probably currently the most vibrant and the most pervasive. And what I mean by that is this, that it's not infrequent, even kind of in our own world of reformed Protestants to hear accounts of the incarnation as if the son underwent some kind of loss or suspension of some Maybe not attribute. That, that's a little extreme. I'll leave that for the uh, progressive Lutherans. Not, by the way, there are Lutherans who absolutely reject uh, canonicism for sure, who are orthodox. I mean, Johann Gerhard on Christ is, there's no canonicism in there as I'm reading it. So don't get me wrong. That's, I'm not saying all Lutherans, but we can just kind of leave that to the Lutherans, the, the devising of attributes. What we tend to do, though, is we tend to, we tend to see the Logos as undergoing some alteration of a state in which there was a glorious condition that was chronologically antecedent to a low condition of humility, and the high condition was actually suspended or divested for a time. Uh, and so this is how we handle texts like 2 Corinthians 8, 9, that he being rich yet for our sakes has become poor. And so we, we then draw the conclusion and therefore gave up his riches. And I submit that that is, in fact, a kind of a kind of at least canonicism of a state. Uh, like, I wouldn't say he was powerful. He who was powerful for our sakes became weak. I mean, I would say that, but I wouldn't then draw the conclusion and therefore gave up his power or suspended it. I wouldn't like say he who was born of a virgin and took on a reasonable human soul that therefore grew in natural knowledge and wisdom and didn't even know the day or the hour that therefore in order to become Christ who doesn't know, he has to give up the state of knowing. And so omniscience has to be kind of laid aside. Um, same thing is true with like omnipresence. I'm not going to say he who, he who filled heaven and earth for our sakes was conceived in a virgin's womb and laid in a manger. Could I say that? Absolutely. Do, does it require, as a precondition, the loss of omnipresence? I don't know, unless you want to go full <laughs> canonicist. 
then by what token do we say that he who was rich yet for our sakes became poor, gave up his riches? What if he assumed poverty? I didn't say added. I'll be careful. What if he assumed poverty rather than emptied himself of riches? And I think it's the emptying. Um, we also get it in terms of the, the way we interpret passages regarding the divine des- or the, the descent of the son. He who came down. And then we add, we add an explanation to it with the help of Charles Wesley. He left his father's throne above, so vast, so infinite his love. But if you read John Calvin in his Institutes, Calvin will say, he came down from heaven, but so as not to leave it. Which is to say, like this idea of relocation, the idea of relocation, he was somewhere pre-incarnate and then he was somewhere else. But pre-incarnate, he's not a, he's not a local circumscribable being in any respect. So how could he leave? You know what I'm after? Like, how does a, how does a son who's nothing but divine leave a place? I mean, at best, you could say he removed a theophanic representation of himself in one location and relocated it to another location. You could say that, but then you would need text to warrant it. And I'm not convinced they're there. Um, so that kind of the idea that descent meant heavenly evacuation. Um, no more than in no more than in Genesis 11, when God says, let us go down there and confound their tongues at the uh, plain of Shinar. Did it mean that for a while God wasn't in heaven? But yet we interpret the incarnation as for a while he wasn't in heaven. Why do we do that? And I submit that there's a little bit of the goat, that the specter of canonicism, that something's got to give. Something about the pre-incarnate state has got to give way for the incarnate state to really be real. And I think, I think that ghost of canonicism haunts even us conservative reformed Protestants. Maybe the last one is like in John 17, 5, when he says, you know, uh, give to me the glory I had with you before the worlds began. Um, John 17, 4 and 5. And then the assumption is he had glory. And then subsequent to having it, he didn't. And he's praying to get it back. And these are all like chronologically ordered moments in the life of the person of the Logos. That temporalizes, I mean, we should be very clear, that temporalizes the glory he has with the Father before the worlds began. But then there's nothing that isn't divine before the world began. But if you're saying the glory of that estate is in fact a mutable one, do you get what I'm after? Like, if he has a glory that he doesn't have subsequent to having had it, and so that therefore it was laid aside, then what you're actually saying is that uncreated glory is mutable. And it's temporally indexed. I think that that, and some some even go so far as to say that what he gave up during the time of the incarnation was the proston logon, or the proston theon, sorry, of John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And I've heard conservative Calvinists say, and then during the incarnation, he gave up the proston theon. He no longer was with God. So the one who in the beginning was with God for a while wasn't, and then later in the ascension went back. I submit that all of those are ways in which canonicism continues to kind of haunt us and and flow in our even evangelical and reformed discourse now. Um, all right. So sorry to get too much like in the kitchen, but that's a little. <laughs> in- no, no, no that's, that's what you got to do with this stuff. Um, you know, it it seems like these things have crept in just because people maybe because people are not understanding what the positive argument is and. I think it just highlights more and more the need to, I don't like using this word because we shouldn't have to use it, but to recover 
these classical doctrines that we find in scripture um because this is how these things slip in is because we don't know what we should know as christians yeah and i'm and i'll be the first to say uh this is something that is learned i mean this is finding a Amen. tradition isn't just something where you find a confession say yeah i agree with it learning yep. your way into it and into its thought world certainly takes time yep um and you know the lord is gracious and patient with us um, we should be with others but that doesn't mean that we should pretend that these things aren't problematic uh when they're said right um, but you're you're right daniel we should be able to get we should give a positive i want to stop short of like explanation but we should give a positive account of what we mean by the incarnation if if nothing's got to give then and i actually think this is where i think this is where what i kind of call i know you guys we had it when we talked about it before we started recording uh the augmentative view I think this is where the instincts of the augmentative view are better uh, and more more worthy than those of the divestitive view. Because I think the augmentative view, what I call the augmentative view, that he added a human nature to himself. I think what under the, what's even though they may not be able to articulate it, I think many who hold that view or express themselves that way, what they're really trying to avoid is the notion that in the incarnation something's got to give. And if if I'm right, that that is, in fact, the common denominator in the whole variety of ancient Christological heresies, if that's the common denominator that the augmentative view is seeking to avoid, I think that that's a I think that's a very good sign. In other words, it, it makes me it, even though the tradition explicitly when the when I say the tradition, I mean, guys like John Owen, John Gill among the Baptists, Thomas Aquinas among the Catholics. When they explicitly deny addition, I, I, I want to stop short of saying, if you ever said the word added to himself a human nature, you're a heretic. I don't think so. I think that you're, I think that actually it's because you're anti-heretical that you're expressing yourself that way. It's just not, it's just not the most apropos way to say it. That's all. Like not saying something quite right isn't the same thing as embracing heresy. Um, if that yes, makes sense. So exactly. I, yeah, that's an important. I think you can make the case. Make. Canonicism is a kind of is a kind of heresy. I don't think that the augmentatism, which is still incorrect, I don't think it's heretical. I just think it's not it's not the right thing to say because it suggests things that probably even those who say it don't exactly mean. Um, yeah, no, I. It, oh, go ahead, Sean. I was going to say I think you uh, hit the nail on the head there because. Um, I would have used that exact language prior to reading your article. And it was only in reading your article that I began to think like, oh, wait, am I saying something I don't actually want to say? Have I accidentally implied something that I don't want to imply here? Um, so, no, I think you're exactly right. And it, it, in my case, I definitely know it was sort of uh, a reaction against a, uh, a canonic view. Not that I would have necessarily been able to articulate it in every single in every single term, but um it was recognizing that's wrong. And then, well, obviously if it's not subtraction it has to be addition, right? That's, that's the logical. Yeah. Cause conclusion. what else is there? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, I mean, really we're looking for, we're looking for conceptualities and language to express ourselves against what strikes us as a heresy. And it, it seems like a tr addition is such low hanging fruit as a kind of counterpoint to subtraction. Uh, it just turns out to be that it just, you just don't, just don't go for it though. Like there's a, there's a, that was actually, I mean, back to the earlier question, like, how did I get into this? Like, tr 
trying to like, how did the whole church seem to be able to navigate its way through the questions reasonably well without ever making an appeal to addition? And it seems like they, and they just use the language of assumption or taking unto they, I would argue they don't mean adding unto. And I, and maybe I should clarify a little bit. I, and I, and I think my article is not as clear as it could be on this point. Um, I'm offering what I, what might be a third way, but it's really not quite a third way. There are really only two and a half views here. Uh, to, I mean, I know that gets way too complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm offering terminative assumption as opposed to augmentative or subtractive or divestitive. But I would actually argue that augmentative assumption also could be a species of terminative assumption, meaning um, there's a certain like I'll just give you an example. Uh, let's just take the accident. This is just easy. The accident of speaking right now, that's an accident of action, meaning it's a state of being that befalls a substance. So right now I'm a speaking substance. My substance can exist without my speaking, but my speaking can exist without my substance or some recording mechanism that has captured my speaking. And now it exists in the recorded mechanism as a set of sounds or probably more like digital, digital information. Um, but talking, like the act of talking, not a recording of it, but the act of talking only exists in a talker, but a talker can a talker can exist and not be a talker. But being but talking can exist without the talker. Okay, so there's a substance accident distinction there. There's a real sense in which the act of the act of speaking is in me right now, and yet I, the substance and the existential terminus, I can I terminate it, and by terminate, I mean I bring to existential realization through the existence of my substance, the existence of my speaking. So, for instance, my speaking does not have an existence of its own. In fact, it only exists parasitically on my existence. I can exist without speaking, but my speaking cannot exist without me because my speaking derives its existence from me so that my existence in a certain sense terminates the existence of the accident that I assume, which is an augmentation. That is to say, it's an additional form of being that's added to me, the speaker. Um, Speaking is a state of being in which I am, but it's not essential or substantial in me. It's an accident. So maybe to the point earlier, Daniel, that I think we can, I think we should probably, and I, I wish I had made this more clear. I think it's implicit in one subsection of the article, but I wish I had spelled it out more. Um, I'm not necessarily proposing terminative assumption as a, as a necessary contrast to augmentation. What I'm proposing is that while every augmentative assumption where you add something to yourself requires a terminus, that is to say something in being that brings to completion that which is added um, or brings it to its, you know, resting state of being, um, so that every so in this respect, I this could be I'd have to think about this more, but let, for the sake of argument, in that case, then every augmentative assumption could have a terminative component. Something does the terminating in the augmenting. But I'm I'm suggesting that termination as such does not require that it be augmentative. In other words, you could terminate without adding something to yourself, or you could terminate by adding something to yourself. And to know which to know how it works, you really actually have to know something about the nature of the terminus. In my case, I'm a substance who is in passive potency to speaking. That is to say, I have the ability to be actualized to further states of being by the acquisition of an accident and also to terminate that accident by supplying existence to it when it is joined to me. 
But so the question is not really augmentative or terminative because augmentative is also terminative. The question is whether every assumption in which a termination takes place takes place according to the modality of addition. That's the question. And I'm suggesting no, that you can have a terminate a terminative, an assumption where the sun, the sun terminates by bringing to completion the reasonable soul and body taken from the virgin's womb, that he can in fact bring to completion that created nature by, by supplying personhood to it from his own person and by supplying personhood to the created, we'll talk about the mechanics of why we say this in a second, but by supplying personhood, he can terminate, that is bring to concrete subsistence that human nature so as to even be the one subsisting in it without receiving something from the nature or losing something from his divine personhood or nature in the, uh, in the assumption. At which point, the, and here's the re- like, well, how come you can have, how can, how can you take something to oneself without adding that which you take to yourself? The answer to that question primarily is going to lie in the nature of the one who does the taking to himself. The nature of the terminus is going to determine whether this is an augmentative sort of uh, assumption or just, or just a merely terminative sort of assumption, and which is a termination without the added component of augmentation. I know that gets a little metaphysically, but I do think that it gets down underneath why you have Baptists and Congregationalists and Presbyterians and Dominican friars all explicitly denying that the Son added anything to himself in the Incarnation, and yet still saying with a straight face, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us um, and was true man born of the virgin not an apparition not a fake incarnation a real incarnation but not an augmentation not a divestment a termination i think i don't know you're that's to your point daniel you wanted something positive i'm proposing termination termination shorn of augmentation as that thing we should be saying and so really the difference between the augmentation and the termination would be uh, one holds to divine simplicity and one seems to imply a change in the divine essence. Yeah. One supply or if not a change in the essence, a change in the substance, meaning like, like there's no change in my essence when I sit down or begin to speak, but there is a change in my being. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I add the form of speaking, which is an accident or in sitting, I add the form of sitting, which is the accident of position. I add these to my substance, but I don't change my essence. Uh, when I say essence, what I really mean is substantial form. I don't become more or less human. So you could, and I think this is the underlying orthodoxy of the augmentative view, which I don't think the augmentative view is good, but the underlying orthodox in, in inclination is when I add a jacket to myself or when I add a position to myself or I add an action like speaking to myself, I don't actually have to give up one whit of my humanity to do that. And that's really what I think the augmentative view wants to avoid, suggesting that something the son possessed was lost to him. Now, I'm, I am proposing also that we reformed Protestants, ha- to say nothing of broad evangelicals, haven't really actually even been doing a good job on that. We definitely have estates of being lost to the son at the moment of incarnation. Uh, just go listen to any reform sermon in the last 50 years on the incarnation, and you'll very likely hear not not very likely. Yeah, I don't say anyone. I guess many. Um, you'll hear hints and allegations that way. Um, it's in our hymns, too. I mean, it's in our hymns. He emptied himself of all but love. 
Um, he left his father's throne above. Okay, same him, I know. But like that's when that stuff goes unchecked, uh, it, I mean, the people seldom believe better than they sing. Um, and so I do, I mean, there's something to that. And I think Ambrose of Milan had that right. We need really great hymns. I love Wesley. I mean, even that hymn, there are verses in that hymn, lines in that hymn. I, I don't want to live in a world where I don't sing that hymn. But then there are certain lines in that hymn where I just think they're errant. Um, the way that he's expressing it and the, and definitely the theology that the people are taking away from it um, is potentially misleading. So do we, do we want to talk about uh, termination like a little bit more, like why we say it that way? Yeah, that would be helpful. Or do you want maybe. something, do you want to do something first? Do you want to talk about the, aug, the I think the augmentation one's pretty clean. Didn't subtract, yeah. added something to himself, yep. you know, yeah, read any kind of standard conservative theology nowadays. And they tend to talk like that. Um, yeah. But I would say read John Owen, you're not going to find that anywhere. Um, so, hey, how about this? Before I do terminate, before we say positively, what do we mean by terminative assumption? Uh, can I give you a few uh, tasty morsels of the anti-augmentative tradition? What I mean is assumption of human nature, but not an addition. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So I think maybe I'm, I have some notes in front of me. I think maybe we could look first at... Um, Thomas Aquinas, and then look at a couple Protestants. Um, so Aquinas is considering, like he's considering a question like, could the son really be incarnated? And the, the objector, not the view he holds, says no, because that which is perfect can't add something to itself. And therefore, and therefore the incarnation is an impossibility for a divine person. So this is how Aquinas, like, he, he raises the objection. This is not his view. This is the view he's going to respond to, but he doesn't totally disagree with the rationale here, just part of it. He says, it would seem that it is not befitting to a divine person to assume a created nature, for a divine person signifies something most perfect. So, well, except for the, well, that statement he agrees with, we should agree with. Now, no addition can be made to what is perfect. That's pretty compelling, actually. Um, if something is boundless in being, then what are you going to add to it? Like, this is not the kind of thing that can be added to. Therefore, since to assume is to take to oneself, also agreed, and consequently that what is assumed is added to the one who assumes, that's where the problem comes in. It does not seem to be fitting to a divine person to assume a created nature. So that which is perfect in being can't add to itself. The assumption is a taking to via addition. Therefore, the son cannot become incarnated. He can't assume our nature because assumption means addition. That's what the objector, that's the objector's reasoning process. I find that reasoning process everywhere in the modern conservative literature. Bruce Ware talks like that. Thomas Schreiner talks like that. I mean, lots of theologians that I really like who have, who've been, well, Ware, not as much. Schreiner, I like very much. Um, but he makes the same assumption that the objector is making here to assume or to take is to add unto. So Aquinas ponders this objection to the incarnation. Now what they're saying, but they do a little more. They say, well, if he's a perfect person, then he can't add to himself because you can't add to that, which is complete or perfect essay completum complete in the act of being. Um, and so how could you possibly add to that? And so this is what Aquinas basically grants the major premise of the objector. The major premise is you can't add to what is perfect. 
he does not grant the minor premise that assumption means addition. What's funny to me is the modern conservatives grant that assumption means addition, and they just don't even consider the problem of perfect person. They just leave it off to the side entirely. Um, so Aquinas gives this as a reply. Since the divine person is infinite, no addition can be made to it. Like that's, when he says that, that is not, that is not out of step with the tradition that went before him or the tradition that follows, whether Catholic or Protestant. They virtually all agree with that, which is, which is why it's so bewildering to hear modern say the tradition says addition, the tradition says addition, when here's a pretty prominent representative of the tradition who explicitly says not addition. Um, hence, Cyril says, we do not conceive the mode of conjunction to be according to addition. That's a, he's citing Cyril there. Um, although I can't find the citation in Cyril, but that may be more on me than Aquinas. Just as in the union of man with God, nothing is added to God by the grace of adoption, but what is divine is united to man. Hence, God not but uh, God, uh, not God, but man is perfected. So he he appeals to like Isaiah sixty three. He's I think he's probably thinking Isaiah sixty three uh, or texts like it. And so he became their savior. That's what it says in Isaiah sixty three. Talking about the Exodus and saving Israel. So they're given a grace. It's a grace of union because remember how he describes the Exodus. He says that he brought them to himself. That's how he describes it. It's a taking unto himself. I brought, the, I brought them to myself at Sinai. And so he became their savior. But how did he become their savior? By drawing them into a new relationship to him. So that it wasn't God who gained something. It was actually they who were put by God into a new relationship to God, by which we say he became their savior. And so Thomas's point is just like nothing, when God becomes your savior, nothing is added to God. There's not a new state of being in God. There's not an augmentation. God wasn't Sean's savior. Same and then later creator. God became more than he was previously by becoming God's uh, Sean's savior, therefore adding savior of Sean to his plurality of attributes. Do you get, if you get what I'm at or to his substance somehow, like that's certain. And Aquinas is basically saying that's not how it works in salvation. That's also not how it works in the incarnation. He's not saying salvation and the incarnation work exactly the same way. His point is God working to bring something in creation into a new relationship to himself does not mean that he added something to himself. So he grants the major premise. Perfect person cannot have any addition made unto him. He rejects the minor premise. All assumption means addition. That's where, that's where he sort of like stands and fights. And I guess that's what I'm trying to do somewhat in this article is to really take a stand in that same place and fight for the fact that there's an assumption that is not an addition. Um, he says like a little in some other places, um, the person of the son of God was not in any way augmented or perfected by the assumed nature. And then he, he says the word of God from all eternity had complete being, uh, essay completum to be complete um, in hypostasis or person. So when you have a complete essay or boundless essay, you can't add anything to boundless act. Like that's it. So part of this is like an entailment of pure actuality as well. Um, but that's a but that's Aquinas. But then uh, then you can go on. Listen to this. These are words from John Owen, much shorter. Um, he says that Christ took our nature to be His own, and then he says, "quote It was no addition unto Him." Just. It's it's not complicated, actually. And he says this in a few he says this in a few places. And then he gives his reason. And the reason Owen gives is the same reason that underlies Thomas's position, which is this. And this is from Owen. 
God alone wants nothing or needs nothing, stands in need of nothing. Nothing can be added unto him, seeing he giveth unto all life, breath, and all things, Acts 17, 25. Um, And so he concludes it this way. Nothing can be taken from him, nothing added unto him. All right, I'll cop to it. The title of my article is not that original. That's virtual. That's all. It's just a slight updating of exactly what John Owen says right there. Nothing can be taken from him. Nothing added to him. He's speaking about the incarnation. He's being very clear. And this, can I give you one more from now? Okay, we've gone from a Catholic to a reformed congregationalist. Can we like, I'll come a little closer into my own world to a particular Baptist. Um, This is the particular Baptist podcast. So I feel like we owe it. We owe it to a particular Baptist giant to hear him. Uh, So this from John Gill. Gill says, by the incarnation, nothing is added to nor altered in the divine nature and personality of Christ. I'm going to pause. I'm going to interrupt Gil Gil really quick. Because you can imagine someone saying, well, nothing was added to his divine nature, but it was really just added to his divine person. Aquinas is ruling that out. Owen is ruling that out. So it, and so is Gil. The human nature, this is Gil again, the human nature adds nothing to either of them. Divine nature, divine person, which are only conceptually distinct anyway. They remain the same they uh, they remain the same they ever were. The human nature has its subsistence in his person and has a glory and excellency given to it. But that gives nothing but that that glorious that glorified human nature of the son, but that gives nothing at all to the nature and person of the divine word and son of God. So does this is the question, does Mary give something to the person of the of the logos conceived in her womb? I think Gill is saying no, because he doesn't lack anything. Do you get what I'm after? There's not, there's no way you can't give to someone who already has all, right? This is, I mean, this is the issue. You don't, you don't give to God in a way where you add something to him. I don't add glory to him when I glorify him. I don't add wealth to him when I put offering in the offering plate. I don't add to God. I don't take from God. I don't exist in that kind of relationship with God. That's a kind of core classical theist uh, framework. That's exactly what is underlying Gill on the incarnation, Owen on the incarnation, Aquinas on the incarnation. And I think that these are not the exceptions. I think that these are the rules, um, these different thinkers. So, all right, that, all right, now that, like, maybe we're now at like our final stage, like we've cleared the ground. Addition isn't the way. So subtraction may be terrible, but addition is not really the tonic that is going to set you right. Um, so what then, right? Like that's, so I'll let you guys say, you guys can push it from here. Where do you want to go with that? No, let's dive right in a determinative assumption. I think that would be a, to talk about the positive argument. Okay. So the language, the first time I came across it was, it's in Owen, or it's in it's in Aquinas for sure. But the first time it stood out to me was actually reading it in um, Francis Turretin, and Francis Turretin, who also stands in line with Aquinas and and the other Reformed on this as well, um, basically says uh, that the word or the person of the word terminates the human nature. I don't know. I see. I was not maybe like most of my contemporaries, maybe you guys too. I was not trained in a theological world where I was really ready to know what to do with a statement like that. When I thought the word doesn't terminate the human nature, it almost sounded like 
doesn't obliterate it. Or I'm sorry, the word terminates the human nature. It almost sounds like obliterates it. But I, of mm-hmm. course, I know Turretin doesn't mean that. Um, not terminates in the sense of blows it away, <laughs> brings it to an end, but terminate, terminates in the sense of supplies the pr- supplies the terminus that brings a thing to its completion. Or we could just change the word and say completes a thing. I mean, it'd be more awkward, but you could say com- this is a completive assumption as opposed to augmentative or like how so. So let's like, if we can get into this a little bit. What does the son take? What does the word take to himself? Now, I know it says he took to himself flesh in John 1.14. Let's avoid Apollinarianism, which said, yeah, see, it was only flesh. It wasn't really a soul. It was just a body. I think it actually emphasizes flesh to to go to the lower part of man's compound nature and say that he took our nature to himself, even in its lowest reaches, the flesh. In other words, I think by going down to flesh, he really means everything human, even even the lower part. But leaving that, so putting that to the side, um, what does he take to himself? What does he assume when he becomes man? And we should say that he assumes a reasonable soul over against Arius and Apollinaris and body over against all forms of docetism and that he himself supplies the personhood to that reasonable soul and body over against Nestorianism. Um, And that we should then over against Eutychianism argue that that reasonable soul and body and the divinity of the person assuming are in no way modified or, or diluted into one another as a consequent of the assumption. So then the question is, what's the terminative function exactly? Um, and older writers used to speak about the human nature of Christ being on hypostasis, which is, I don't disagree with that. I think it's, it's a strange way of putting it, but I don't disagree with it, which is to say, he takes to himself a reasonable soul and body, but not the reasonable soul and body of a human person. Uh, There is no created person in Christ Jesus. There's a created nature taken unto union, given, brought into union with a divine person, hence hypostatic union, hypostasis, united to his person, and therefore, and thereby through the person united to his divine nature um, in the person. But I'll, I'll say it like this. If I talk to my wife after our conversation and I, and she'll say, well, how'd your, you know, how did your discussion go? And I'll say, oh, you know, those are two fine rational souls and bodies with whom we were talking about Christology. Like she's going to look at me and be like, well, who were they? Mm-hmm. You know, and the right answer is who? Daniel and Sean. That's who. But what if I said, what do you mean who? Just what? <laughs> do you have an, like she's going to like call the doctor. <laughs> something's, something's wrong with my husband. Like you don't have conversations with rational souls and bodies simply you always mm-hmm. have a ra- you always have a conversation with the rational soul and body of someone or someone who exists in rational soul and body um rational soul and body is the or reasonable soul and body are the basic ingredients uh, rational animality if you want to use aristotle's language these are the basic ingredients of human nature that's mm-hmm. a human is a person who subsists that way mm-hmm. okay But that itself, the nature itself is not identical with personhood per se, meaning um, simply to say rational soul and body does not distinguish Daniel, Sean, or James. Mm. That's in fact what doesn't distinguish us. That's what we call our genus, 
animality and our species rationality. And in fact, reasonable soul and body is the human nature. But to be, but the human nature never exists all by itself. It always exists as the human nature of someone. There's always a who there. Have you ever noticed that with human natures? Like it's always a, there's always a who hanging around the nature. Okay, I'm being a little facetious, but like you get <laughs> you get what I'm after. So there is a there is a distinction between persons and the in in humans. I mean, there's a distinction between persons and the natures in whom they subsist in which they subsist. I would argue this that a human nature cannot exist apart from person or hypostasis whose nature it is. Now, the real question, this is the deeper question, the harder one, and one that I'm not sure we could answer philosophically and that we would ever be able to answer philosophically if we did not have scripture motivating us through special revelation to consider this, but it's this. Is it necessary that a true human nature be the human nature of a human or a created someone? In other words, it's a, it's a created nature, but does the who, who's, I mean, when I say who, I mean person, but I'm just going to, I'm trying to pick some different words here. Does the who, whose nature it is, have to be human or creature? Human nature, to be human nature, has to be created. But does human nature have to subsist through a, through a created person? I don't know that philosophically we would have the equipment to answer either way on that question, but in terms of Christology and in terms of what's revealed in Holy Scripture, that the only who there is a divine who, there's no human who there. That's adoptionism. That's Nestorianism. The only human who shows up in Ebionitism or in Nestorianism. We're saying that there's a human what, not a human who. There's a divine who. So if I can put it like this way, there's some, someone who is God is man via mm-hmm. the nature that he assumes to himself. What's the terminus, the termination? In as much as a reasonable soul and body can't concretely exist in reality apart from someone whose reasonable soul and body it is, that the person supplies the concrete subsistence to the reasonable or rational soul and body, and that in the case of the Son incarnate, and only in the case of the Son incarnate, the who is supplied by a divine person as opposed to a created person, thereby terminating, that is to say, bringing to completion in concrete reality, the reason, the created reasonable soul and body, which is the human nature. And in, in the question, so that's what I mean by terminative assumption, that he draws into relation to his person, a created soul and body. I don't, I don't mean individually. And we can talk, bring the soul first to the body. I think he brings them together at the very moment of conception into union with his person, thereby conferring concrete subsistence, Humani- real humanity concretely existing in space-time onto that human nature. Uh, and, and it doesn't pre-exist the union with the person. So it's not, we're not talking about adoptionism. It's not like he's hunting around. He's like, hey, look, there's there's a little rational soul and body that no person has yet claimed. Let's take <laughs> that one for the divine son. You know, like it never exists in some historical state where it isn't the rational soul and body of someone. Um, it's always the reasonable soul and body of someone. Every human nature is the reasonable soul and body of someone. The question is, is a divine, is it a divine someone or a created someone whose reasonable soul and body it is? It's always a created someone in every case of concrete humanity, except for one. Uh, 
in so now the question is does the son not lose something or gain something by thereby supplying by supplying personhood to the reasonable soul and body and the answer is not necessarily and definitely not if he is essay completum infinite person perfect in being do you get what i'm after he can supply concrete subsistence and be the who who is born of mary without gaining or losing all that is needed is that the human nature derive concrete subsistence through its union to the divine person but then the divine person isn't gaining he's taking on flesh not by adding to himself but by bringing a created nature into personal union thereby supplying concrete subsistence and personal identity to it um there are two anal- so okay that's what i mean by terminative assumption there are two analogies that i like i use these at the end of the article and i derived them from garigou lagrange though i think garigou lagrange might have gotten them from domingo banyas um And the first one is with regard to an object of sight. So, I mean, I could pick something easy. I've got like a little fuzzy top on my microphone here and I can see the fuzzy top on my microphone. And there's a sense in which I am a potential seer, like actually seeing the microphone um, is something distinct from potentially seeing the microphone, but I won't have actual sight until I have seen objects, until there's something that terminates my sight and gives me something to see. The, the seeing of the fuzzy top of my microphone, the fuzzy top of my microphone supplies the actuality of sight to me by being the seen object, but it doesn't gain something from me. In other words, being seen by James doesn't take anything from the fuzzy top of the microphone and doesn't add anything to the fuzzy top of the microphone, but rather the form of this bit of mat, this, this form actually enters into my mind, thereby bringing me from a state of possibly knowing and possibly seeing to actually seeing and actually knowing. So this actually, so this fuzzy top has an actualizing role with regard to me. I'm a potential seer. It's a seeable thing. The actuality of the thing uh, that is in this microphone supplies the actuality to my potency of vision, thereby making me see. Uh, It terminates my line of sight. It brings it to completion but it doesn't get anything and it doesn't lose anything by supplying to me the form of, you know, the, the form to be seen. The other analogy that Gary Lagrange uses, Lagrange uses is a point and a line where mm-hmm. geom- I mean, in a gym in geometry a point, I mean, I know we have to put them with dry erase markers or chalk or pencils, but strictly speaking, a point has no distension. It has no length. It has no depth. It has no weight. It's actually, it's absolutely extensionless. Now we have to represent it to ourselves with a little bit of extension just so we can see it because you can't see something non-extended. But strictly speaking, a geometrical point, as opposed to the one you draw on a paper or a chalkboard is in fact extensionless. And yet it's also necessary to bring a line segment to completion. Like let's say line segment AB to bring a line segment to completion. You don't just need, because a, like a geometric line as opposed to a line segment is boundless. Like it's, it's indefinite. Can we say it like that? It's indefinite. But if you want to define it and bring it to completion as line segment AB, you're going to need two termini. You're going to need to be, you're going to need point A and point B point A and point B are necessary to terminate and bring to completion line segment AB, which is potentially line segment AB until the line stretches from point A to point B point A terminates the line point B is another terminus of the line. They are necessary to bring the segment to completion as a segment. 
and yet, and, and they're even intrinsic to the line. Like you can't actually explain the being of line segment AB without talking about point A and point B as definitive. In other words, they are necessary for the concrete reality of the segment. Great. But they don't gain anything from it. Like becoming point A on an XY for line segment AB is potentially the terminus for endless numbers of lines. Like line segment AB, AC, AD, A, and like you could, because it's not distended, because it doesn't actually, now you couldn't draw that for sure. I'm just talking geometrically here, uh, abstractly. Um, point A could potentially be the terminus for countless things, and it wouldn't like ever experience overload. Your brain might have overload trying to hold in mind all the different line segments that could be terminated in point A, but point A is never overloaded because point A is neither being hollowed out or added to by terminating line segments. And I, this, these are just by way of analogy. I'm not suggesting, and that's the incarnation in a nutshell. Certainly <laughs> not. But I, but I am saying the logic of terminative assumption where the thing that terminates actually confers a concrete reality onto that which is drawn into union with it without subtraction or addition is not a nonsensical notion. That's all I'm concerned with. It's not a nonsensical notion. And so by way of analogy, I'm not trying to explain the incarnation. I'm just trying to say that the person terminating the assumed nature, but not by losing or gaining is not de facto nonsense because to assume or to take to oneself does not always mean gains thereby or loses thereby. If it doesn't mean that with points, and if it doesn't mean that with objects of vision, then it doesn't have to mean that with regard to the person of the sun, either in the incarnation. Moreover, then now you just need to consider what motives you have for holding that view. And the motives are, back to classical theism, it is immutable, timeless, eternal, simple, essay completum, <laughs> and therefore cannot gain and cannot lose. And yet I think you're left with the mystery but you're not left with a bit of nonsense and you didn't hollow out classical theism to pull it off. I don't know. That's, I guess that's the, that's what I'm after uh, in the article. And it's interesting that you, you know, going back to the, what subs, what gives um, subsistence to the human nature, you know, I, I can see how it would be easy to insert, you know, like with Nestorianism, insert a human nature along with the divine nature. You know, you go to passages like Hebrews two seventeen. he was made in every way we were yet with, um, just like his his fellow man. Um, and we could infer from that that there was a human person created. Um, but this is an instance where we have to take the inference of other places in Scripture that speak more clearly or that might have clear implications about Christ uh, in his earthly ministry and try to hold all those things together. Because you're right, there is no outside philosophical discussion that can explain that. We have to use special revelation to because this is a special instance. This is nothing in the created order that we can compare to. All I'm interested in is is not is saying this doesn't explode metaphysics. This yep. doesn't it doesn't make philosophy uh, inept in any way. Yes, it gives us a datum that at least in the moment of discovery, natural philosophy would not be equipped to discover. Yep. Now, having discovered it through the scriptures philosophy can chasten and shape our language mm -hmm. in terms of, at least in a via negativa, a way of saying this yep. that isn't nonsense. Mm -hmm. But that's not the same thing as suggesting that philosophy discovers terminative assumption. That's just a philosophical way of characterizing what the biblical data would have us believe about mm -hmm. the sun incarnate. Um, and so really, I mean, I really hope 
if readers look at the article and they can find a free a free draft of it at um, at my academia.edu page, but they can also I put a little link at the top of that document. You can also link to a viewing of the published version of it by clicking one of those links. You can see it in its published form. But my, like my, I hope they wouldn't take away that this is philosophy dictating to the dictating to the incarnation what it shall be. Mm. That this is this is really philosophy insofar as there's philosophy here being pressed into the service of a theological datum that would be totally undiscoverable apart from the revelation of Holy scripture. Hmm. I don't think that that's true with every theological claim that we make because I believe in natural theology, Yep. but I don't believe in a natural Christology and I don't believe like in a natural Trinitarian theology. I do believe that Trinitarian theology and Christology should sync up with a true natural theology, but they are not actually discovered by us via natural theology and natural theology itself and so or philosophy insofar as it's going to be serviceable to us is going to have to characterize not falsify but characterize the data that scripture gives us on these specially revealed points like christology or trinity no that's a great point and and it's really it helps us to keep philosophy in its proper place because I, yeah. I think there's As a, a handmaiden, to we should make a lot of work, daniel what right, you we say? should make it do. We should make it. We should make philosophy slave around the house of theology. Yes, I have no, I have no objections to that <laughs> yep. whatsoever. Amen. Um, but to dismiss philosophy from our employment entirely because mm. we're afraid that it might be usurpatious, wanting to take over the mistress. Um, don't get me wrong. There are philosophies that absolutely want to usurp theology and just. Yeah you know, kick, kick the mistress out of the house, so to speak. But I don't think the solution is to fire philosophy. Hmm. I think the solution is to, the solution is to do better philosophy because good philosophy will never be usurpatious of good theology. It will always serve it. Even if it can't do and discover what good theology can in certain points of doctrine. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Well, Sean, you want to squeeze in the final, uh, your final question there? Um, yeah, sure. Um, so uh, when talking about the person of the son, how can we properly speak of him acting according to both natures? And uh, for example, uh, can we properly say God died on the cross without positing, uh, positing passability? Uh, short answer, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, you, you can. I mean, you can say God was crucified. What you can't, but but it does depend. Now, there's some finessing that has to go on in order to say that. If you say that in, a, in an average congregation, people are going <laughs> to hear passable God. Yep. Uh, so, like, I would advise some qualification if you're going to say that. But certainly there's an orthodox way to say that. Uh, and it's basically, I mean, in the communicatio idiomatum, there's a certain sense in which sometimes things are said about that are proper to one nature, like dying on the cross, but they're said with regard to a name that is drawn from the other nature, like divinity. So you can say God died, but you could also say this man created the world. Or a, you could say a man, like I could say a man created the world. A man born in Bethlehem created everything. I could say that. But th- what I'm actually doing, it's a little bit of imprecision in my language. I'm When I say a man, what I mean is this person. Uh, created the world. And when I say God, what I mean is this person underwent death, not qua person and not qua divine, but Mm -hmm. as subsisting in humanity. Um, Insofar as he is man, who, since there's no other who there, because we're not an historian, who 
underwent death and suffered under Pontius Pilate is none other than the eternally generated son of God, very God of very God. And yet it's not as divine that he suffered. And yet because who suffered is also God, I can say God suffered. But again, what I'm doing is I'm allowing nature language to kind of substitute for person predication. And as long as I know that, that, that there's a kind of, there's a little imprecision and what like, it's like when Paul talks to the Ephesian elders about, you know, the church, which God purchased with his own blood. Well, God doesn't have a circulatory system just to start with. Um, and when we talk about the breath of God or the Ruach of God breathing out, God doesn't have a respiratory system either. And so there's a certain sense in which we begin to, at least in the case of like the blood of God, you're taking something that his human nature has and you're attributing it to him in terms of a name that is derived from his divine nature. And this is what some theologians call the communication of names or the communicatio idiomatum, communication of idioms. I think it's biblically warranted as long as we understand uh, how it's functioning in a kind of imprecise way based upon the unity of the person. And I do, I will put one more, I know I recommended a couple books earlier, but let me recommend one, this time not a book, you can find this free online. Thomas Aquinas, Summa Theologiae, Tertia Pars, or part three, question 16, all of the articles. That one question, third part, question 16, all the articles. If you want to, like Sean, to your point, if you really want to train your language into what you can and cannot say and kind of where the boundaries and where the the ability is inside of Jesus talk or Christ talk or God talk, um, that's a very, Aquinas offers a very nice tech taxonomy and the rationale for it of sort of the range of things you could say. So I'll ask questions like, is it proper to say a man created all things? And then he tells you how it can and cannot be the right thing to say and how to kind of finesse your language. But the short answer, yes, you can say it. Advisable not to say it without qualification. Um, All right. Well, lots of good stuff we talked about today. Very, there's always going to be an element of mystery in this. um, And that's okay. We can accept that. But we believe what the scriptures teach and we, we can describe what we can based on what's explicitly and implicitly taught there. But Dr. Dolzo, we appreciate your time today. Thank you for this discussion. Um, uh, It's been very helpful. Daniel and Sean, it was a pleasure, and thanks for hosting me. You're welcome. Absolutely. And with that, everyone, we'll be back next week. Thank you for joining us today, and have a great holiday weekend. Lord bless.